How are you all going? Um, for those who don't know me, yeah, I'm Danny Roberts, as introduced before. Um, I'm new to preaching and public speaking, so please forgive me if I don't make any sense. Um, but I'll just say a little bit about myself to begin with. Um, well, I grew up in, in Dolby, which is probably three hours drive west, um, country town, lots of crops and, um, you know, just a standard little country town, you probably just keep driving straight through, it's not that great, really. <laughs> um, I'm a carpenter by trade, and that's what I did before I came to BST. I'm actually in my second year of my Bachelor of Ministry. Um, but yeah, I used to work for a company that had building products all over Queensland, uh, from Brisbane to Dolby to um, Mackay and Cloncurry. So um, the speakers this morning were talking about being in Cloncurry, so I had some... Yeah, I had some to say to him about that because it's a pretty hot place and pretty deserted. But uh, yeah, to get to those jobs, it, it involved a lot of flying. So I had plenty of times to sit in the airport waiting. Sometimes when you're in an airport, you can observe the difference between passengers who hold confirmed tickets and are still waiting to get through checkout with limited time. I'm usually one of those guys. Then the, there's the ones that are confident and they hold confirmed tickets, but when they get to the counter, their ticket is denied for some reason. And then there's those who hold confirmed tickets and are comfortably and confidently waiting in the lounge and expecting a boarding call. The ones standing around waiting for the ticket counter are the ones they pace around and can't relax. Now the difference between this, all these people here is a big confidence factor. If you knew that in 15 minutes you'd stand before the Lord and in judgment and you wouldn't know what he's going to say, what would your reaction be? Would it be, I don't know what God's, well, welcome home, child, or will it be, depart from me, I never knew you? Regarding salvation and assurance, there are three groups of people. One, those who are secure but not sure. Two, those who are sure but not secure. And three, those who are secure and sure. Category one, are believers in Christ who are saved but lack assurance. And category two, are professing Christians who say, even though I'm living in sin, I'll make it. After all, once saved, always saved. The third group are born-again believers who enjoy a warm and secure relationship with Jesus every day. The passage I'm preaching on tonight is one we can read and know for sure where we will be positioned at the airport or what I say, could I say, where we will spend eternity. In verse 1, John indicates one of the purposes for his writing. He's reflecting on what he's just written in chapter 1. Perhaps he's worried that people may misunderstand what he was trying to say. And those who were this morning listened to um, Alan preach on chapter 1. So I think John is thinking there could be two mis- possible misunderstandings. Firstly, if a sin is reality, and it is impossible for me to live a sinless life, then why bother? If I sin, big deal. God will forgive me. Secondly, some might think, as a Christian, I have liberty, and I'm no longer under the law, so I can do what I want. If I sin, God will forgive me. One scholar calls this the Rasputin Syndrome. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. This goes back to the beginning of the last century where Rasputin, a peasant who claimed to be a religious healer, played a big part in the demise of the royal Romanov family in Russia. Rasputin justified his own sinful lifestyle with a clever misuse of Romans 5, 20 and 21. There Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Thus, Rasputin said, if we sin as Christians, we provide God an opportunity to exercise and magnify his grace, so sin away. Of course, both of these approaches are completely false. 
For example, when a large manufacturing company like a building site provide an on-site medical clinic, they're not encouraging you to um, have an injury. This passage might be considered something of an on-site medical clinic for those who um, are not so... It says, well, you consider it might say, watch out that you don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Just like that medical clinic sitting there saying, if you have an accident, we're here. Now, Christians are saved from sin, but not to sin. And if we think about it, we're caught between a rock and a hard place. We cannot reach sinless perfection in this world, but yet we're commanded not to sin. The point is, our life should be to live day by day without committing sin in thought, word or deed. That's easier said than done. But although certainly Christians should be people who sin less than after, after they've been saved, um, it's not so easy. So John makes it pretty clear that Christians still sin. And that's why he says there, there are no qualifications. I'm talking about actually verse 1. If, if you still sin. If you sin, we have an advocate of the Father. So he doesn't say, you know, if you're young or old, if you're rich or poor, minister or lay person, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All sinners are seen as equal, as well as all sins. John doesn't mention certain sin. He doesn't categorise sin. Sin is all the same. Verse 2 talks about Jesus, our atoning sacrifice. There had, been an, there had to be an atoning sacrifice because God is a God of wrath and justice as well as a God of holiness and love. Have you ever wondered why God couldn't have just wiped our sins away without sending his son to die? To do so would have showed he is loving, but it would have gone against the rest of his characteristics. God has to be true to himself, and that's how we know we can trust him. Because sin is offensive to God's holy nature, he has a righteous anger towards it. No one could have paid the price. No one is good enough but Christ. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As common as that verse is, if we think about it, there's no greater love. Not only did God find a way to pay the price for our sin, but he gave his only Son to do it. So why is it that we have our sins forgiven? It's because we have an advocate. The word advocate means one who's called alongside to help in a time of need. John also uses this word in, chap, uh, in, chap, in John chapters 14 to 16 referring to the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. The Holy Spirit is translated there as helper, but here the word is rightly translated as advocate because not only does it mean one called alongside to help, but it also means when he lends his voice in our defence, when he speaks up on our behalf. Therefore, as a believer, you can actually have two advocates. You have an advocate in your life indwelling you, the person of the Holy Spirit. He speaks on behalf of God to you and convicts you of sin. You also have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And because he's altogether righteous and paid the penalty on the cross when he died for our sins as a substitute, Jesus is our advocate. No pope or bishop or the priest or the Virgin Mary is our advocate. No pastor or deacon or Bible study leader is our advocate. We have but one advocate who fills that role, and that's Jesus. And he is alone he's the one, the alone, the only one who paid the price for our sins. The statement that John makes in verse 3 is central to this passage. John says, 
If we know, we know that we have come to know him, that is Jesus Christ, if, if we, if we keep his commands. John is practically posing an assurance question. How do we know if we truly know Christ? But then he gives us the answer straight away. We know him if we obey his commands. Now, if we were to only read that verse and not to read the rest of the passage, we'd run into all kinds of problems. If we be realistic, we can immediately see areas of disobedience in each of our lives. And we might start asking questions like, since I don't always obey God's commands, does that mean I don't know Christ? And wait a minute, this sounds like a works-based salvation. And I thought we were saved by grace. We can look at the Pharisees, for example. If we're doing good works with a motive that somehow we are earning our salvation, then the Pharisees would get a 10 out of 10. The Pharisees thought they had it all. They obeyed all the laws except for the ones that really mattered. So is our salvation earned by how many good works that we can do? The answer is no, because we'd have to be absolutely perfect to earn it. We can look back at verses 1 and 2 and see that John has already told us that we are not perfect. The whole reason for Jesus is that if we sin, which means that we will sin, He will be our advocate. To put this in context, also chapter 1 says that if we claim to be without sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. So no one is perfect. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So John is not talking here about the perfect life. He's talking about a changed life. Quite simply, obedience is an expression of love for God. And verse 5 means those who love God will obey him. You cannot love something or someone and ignore or neglect them. Matthew 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, which commandments do I need to fulfil to enter the kingdom? And Jesus tells him, well, he sums it up in two. He said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbour as yourself. And he says, oh, smugly, you know, I've done that since I was a boy. He thought he had it all. But then Jesus tells him to sell everything he had, give the proceeds to the poor and follow him. This passage shows us that this young man never truly understand, understood what it meant to love God with all his heart. He was putting money above God, and without knowing it, he was an idolater. Like Jesus knew this young man's heart, he also knows ours. Like the young man didn't earn salvation by obeying all the laws but one, we also can't live like Christ unless we love him above all else. We are saved by grace, but it's vital that we actually know that we have to be loving Jesus with all of our hearts. And if we love him, we will do what he has told us. Jesus puts it in plain English, well, originally not, but it is now. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. For example, when you fall in love with someone, you want to please them. I'll be married to my wife for a year next month. And when I first fell in love with her, all I wanted to do was please her. But now, nearly after a year... All I want to do is just please myself. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> Seriously, though, I wanted to make—I wanted to make her happy. I wanted—I wanted to do everything I could, even if that meant making sacrifices in my own life. Those sacrifices were nothing to me. It wasn't a big deal to give certain things up. In fact, I wasn't doing those things to try and earn her love. I was doing it because I loved her, and I wanted to make myself available for her. I was. And not that she ever gave me commands, which some I've heard do, but when she asked me to do something for her, I didn't even think about saying no. I would do it straight away. I didn't do those things to get to know her 
get to know her or so I could learn to love her. I did it because I already knew her and I already loved her. You see, we can never truly know Jesus if we're just by obeying his commands. We obey his commands because we love him. Okay, so that we know we have to love Jesus. That if we love Jesus, we should be obeying his commands. But what does that look like? The answer is in verse 6, to live like Jesus did. If obeying his commands sounds scary, then perhaps being like Jesus sounds even scarier. Let's remember that Jesus was not into legalism or rule-keeping. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. Notice Jesus does say that they should have been obeying the laws. He acknowledges that it's a good thing they were doing that. But we see clearly that Jesus is not interested in works unless it's genuinely motivated by love. It all comes back to love. So we had to be like Jesus. Let's look at how we lived. Matthew 9.35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. We could see that Jesus wanted to bring glory to his Father. Everywhere he went, he was showing the love of the Father and praying for healing. Let's look at a couple more verses. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10.45. And for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. Jesus was an evangelist. He came to bring glory to his Father. He came to serve us. He came to save us, and ultimately he came to love us. Jesus sounds pretty powerful to me. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have the power to live as he did? But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the scandal of grace. We've been given that power, and we don't have to pay for it. We don't even have to earn it by strict law-keeping. In spite of our hopeless state, we're simply given it free of charge. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Isaiah wrote, I revealed myself to those who did not seek me. I was found by those who did not ask for me. To a nation that did not call my name, I said, here I am, here I am. I don't know about you guys, but when I think about how God has given us everything when we didn't even want him in the first place, it makes me want to be like him. It makes me want to live like Jesus did. How can we not grab this opportunity? I mean, I like free stuff. Free stuff's great. Or even winning something by chance is nice. But what Jesus offers is not by chance. What he offers is purposeful and is offered to everyone. Think of it like this. Imagine that a great rugby, uh, rugby manager approached you with a remarkable gift to offer. You had the power to instantly give you the raw skills and athleticism to become a professional rugby player. What's more, he can also instantly give you a love for the game. What do you think you're going to do with those gifts? Would you become a lifelong rugby fan? Well, sure. But you wouldn't just be satisfied to sit and watch. You'd develop your skills and try it for a team. In the same way as a believer begins to grasp life-changing power and love that he or she has received in the gospel. This motivates and empowers them to live like Jesus did. To be an agent of the gospel's power and love. No matter where God has placed us in this life, we can live like Jesus did. We can be an evangelist in our workplace. We can pray for others to be saved and pray for their healing. In everything we do, we can serve others. And in doing that, we'll be mirroring Christ to the world around us. 
Okay, so we need an, we, we know we need to live like Jesus and do what he did, but why did he do those things? Simply because he loved us. Therefore, we need to love others too. That brings up a huge issue in most people's lives. We can't say that we love Jesus if we do not love others. If you say that, then the Apostle John would call you a liar. Verses 7 to 11 talk about an old but a new commandment to love others. John says that if we hate our brother or sister, then we are lost in darkness and we do not shine the light of Christ. We, say, we can't say that we love Jesus if we're purposely failing to live up the principles and obey his commands. We claim to be a follower of Christ, but hate someone, then we're deceiving ourselves. John illustrates it like someone who is in complete and utter darkness. They are blind to what is really going on in their life. Walking in the dark is a dangerous thing to do, and that's just common sense. I don't know anyone that wouldn't try and find a light switch or a torch so they couldn't see anything. In the same way, we need to reach for, the, for Jesus, who you could say is a light switch of eternal life. On some big commercial building jobs, we used to drill eight-metre piers uh, for the foundations. Um, they were like 600 mil wide, pretty deep. And um, engineers had to um, inspect the bottom, make sure there's no loose dirt. Uh, if there was, they had to put the drill down again and clean it out. But the point is, we needed a torch or something to look, it was too dark to look down. And um, I remember one time an engineer had um, a bit of mirror he'd got out of his ear because he didn't have a torch. And um, he was able to use that to reflect the light of the sun straight down into the darkness. And um, what I'm really trying to illustrate here is that we need to be so in love with Jesus that just like that light reflects that light down to the darkness in, in that pier, that, we re- that, that light from Jesus reflects straight off us and into the darkness of the world. So how do our lives measure up? Are we loving people? Are we reflecting Jesus to people? Is Jesus even the person we're trying to be like? If he isn't, then who's your pattern for Christian living? Some people want to pattern their lives after their favourite movie star or entertainer or musician or successful businessman or sports hero or parent or pastor or Bible study teacher. Certainly other Christians can furnish a good example for us, but ultimately our pattern for living must be for Jesus. (coughs) And Jesus is love. One of the Greek words for love is agape. It is a love that is unselfish in nature, a love that gives and expects nothing in return. It is a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. I love you anyway, regardless of the circumstances. It is a love that puts the needs of others before your own. This is the kind of love that God has for us and that we have to have for the others and for the world around us. So back to the point we can't be hating people. The only way not to hate someone who has hurt you is to love them. And Jesus told us to do that. <coughs> Matthew 5, 43-48 If you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, not be, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, the Gentiles? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus made the point pretty clear here that we have to love our enemies. And then he showed us how to do it. He loved the very people that beat him and nailed him on the cross. 
even praying for his enemies. Jesus endured all the pain and suffering that we deserve in going to the cross and dying for our sins. The most painful thing he endured when he took on the sin of the cross was that in that moment he experienced something he'd never experienced before. In that moment he experienced complete separation from the Father. For the first time, Jesus didn't refer to God as his Father because at that moment he wasn't being treated like a son. Instead he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think Jesus was afraid of the physical death or the pain so much. He loved his Father so much that he couldn't bear to be separated from him. But friends, do we know that same love? The one so strong that nothing would be worse to be separated from it. The kind of separation is, the, is that one that Jesus felt on the cross is a sign, is the same kind of separation that we will have in eternity if we don't live like Christ, if we don't love others. I'm sure that none of us want to experience that kind of separation. And I know that God doesn't want that for us either. 2 Peter 3.9 states that God does not will for anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Do we obey his commands because we love him? Do we live and love like he did? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, this passage Lord, you've given us to, to read tonight, Lord, and just to share. I thank you for your word in general, Lord, that we can learn from it. And Lord, I pray that as this word has convicted me tonight, that it would convict others. Lord, that our assurance would be that we know that we obey commands because we love Jesus. And we live how Jesus lived. And we love how Jesus loved. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that you died on the cross for us. And that because you are our advocate, we have a hope in eternity. Amen.